Welcome to the weekly podcast for City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the world's okayest church, right here in Austin. Get to know us better at citychapelchurch.com. We're so glad that you joined us today and hope you enjoy the message. talk about the giant of anger today. And uh, you might be here, you might think that you don't really struggle with the giant of anger, but I think all of us to some extent have encountered or are currently encountering uh, this giant in our lives, the giant of anger. And in order for you to move forward, in order for you to get closer to God, in order for you to, to continue to grow in your relationships, I mean, just in order for you to sometimes hold down a job, you got to deal with the giant of anger. You got to face this thing. And so, so today it is my prayer and it's my belief that as we talk about um, the giant of anger from God's word, as we look at God's word, that God's going to give us some practical steps that we can take um, to, to, to see victory come in our lives. Because Jesus, by the way, has already defeated the giant of anger. I just want you to know, Jesus has already defeated. Uh, he got him right in the face with a, with a, with a bean ball, right in the face, just knocked him right out. Jesus is already defeated. The giant of anger, but, but for us, we want to learn how to walk in that victory. We want to learn how to step into that. And so, um, so my first point is very helpful. It is that anger is destructive. Anger is destructive. We see anger, I mean, your all's anger wasn't very destructive, but um, the 930s anger was destructive. They, they, they really tore up some stuff. Um, but that's what anger does. And, and by the way, that's, that's, that's intentional. It's supposed to be that way. Anger is supposed to be destructive. Uh, it's kind of like, like a weapon. It's kind of like a gun um, that it is going to uh, destroy something. Right? That's why it's a little odd that they call them assault rifles because really all guns, whether you're talking you know, a, an AK-47 or a BB gun, are all for the purpose of assault. Um, but not all assault is bad. Uh, there are some things that need to be knocked down and assaulted in your life. There's some thing, I mean, if somebody's coming after you and your family, I'm just saying that maybe there's some things that need to, that need to be um, assaulted. Some things need to be taken out. There's some things that need to be eliminated. I mean, this is why, this is why people sign up for war. This is why people, uh, 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 you know, got, got on little boats and, and got off the shores of Normandy because they had a sort of a good type of anger inside of them that, man, something needs to change. Evil cannot be allowed to, to continue. We have to stop evil in the world, but also the evil in our own hearts. And that's where uh, it might be surprising to you, but God himself is also angry. Uh, you, if, you, if you read the Bible much, you find the Bible talks a lot about God's wrath. This old school word, well, God's wrath or God's anger. It's actually in every book of the Bible. And there's some books that are almost entirely devoted to the wrath of God. Like, has anyone ever read Lamentations? You ever read the book of Lamentations? Okay, all right, that's, 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 that's everybody's homework. Everybody's homework. It's only four chapters. Um, don't read it if you're feeling down because uh, it's Lamentations, which means it is a long lament. It's a cry. Uh, the whole book is all about the wrath of God, the justice of God, the punishment of God. I mean, it, it, it's fascinating book because in our culture we talk so much about the love of God and we almost see the anger of God as like an antithesis the opposite of love that's because we're coming at it from the wrong angle uh, in God's um, sphere God is both angry at sin and he is loving toward the sinner at the exact same time 
uh, because he has what is called good anger. So as we talk about how anger must fall, I don't want to eliminate all anger from our lives. I don't want to knock out all anger because there's some anger that's just plain good. There's some, there's some, sometimes we won't actually change until we get a little bit angry. You know what I mean? And maybe... I don't know, maybe the complacency sermon a couple weeks ago really spoke to you all, but, but seriously, like, like sometimes we have to get angry with the way things are. We have to get fed up with living in bondage. We have to get fed up with dealing with the same thing over and over and over again, and something inside of us has to shift, and we have to become somewhat angry at, at, at what is going on in our lives, at the bondage in our life. And this is God's anger. God is angry at sin. He is angry at bondage. He is, he is angry at, 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 at mass shootings. He is angry at, 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 at the sex trade and the slave trade that's going on. He is angry at, at injustice and when, and when the rich oppress the poor. He is angry uh, at those things. And by the way, he's also angry at sexual sin. He's also angry at drunkenness. Hello, Austin. How's it going? We love you. God loves you. I know it's great. Um, but he's angry at sin. Anything that would destroy us, anything that would, that would drag us to hell, he is angry at that. And his anger is a weapon. It is destructive and it comes up to the strongholds in our life and it just starts pushing them over. It starts breaking strongholds in our life. That's what it's there for. It's there to bust some stuff up. Is there to take out some giants? Is there to take out some ideologies and some, some enslavement mentality that we have in, within our minds and oppression? It's there to break the oppression of the enemy over us. And his anger is, 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 is powerful, but it's, it's destructive, but it's destructive in a good way. It destroys, good anger destroys bad things, but bad anger destroys good things. Many of us uh, don't, don't suffer from good anger as much as we suffer from bad anger. It's the kind of anger that destroys the good things that God's trying to do in our lives. Whether we're, sometimes it's self-sabotaging anger. Sometimes it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's pushing us away from the people that God wants us to be with. Sometimes it, it destroys our relationships. It destroys, it dis disqualifies us from even holding down a job because we, we grow angry with people. This is the kind of anger that must fall. And this kind of anger is actually seen in the story of David and Goliath. We've been camping out in David and Goliath for the past few weeks, so I'd like to bring up um, that passage from 1 Samuel chapter 17. And I want to read a little bit about um, the time when David came to the fight. So David is a shepherd boy. He is the youngest of eight sons, sons of Jesse. He's not allowed to fight. He wasn't um, requested uh, by the king to be there, to be present, uh, to represent his family. And apparently his family didn't think he was eligible um, to fight. And so he's, he's staying back, um, tending the sheep. And it says, David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse, his dad, had commanded him. He came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line. They were shouting the war cry. All of Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went to meet uh, his brothers. Now you remember he has three brothers that are there at the battle, the oldest, uh, the second oldest, and the third oldest. Now, this is rank of importance. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath was his name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as he had been speaking before. In other words, he, he challenged 
the Israelites to send a man out to fight him. And if, if, if he won, then the Israelites would be their slaves. And if the Israelite won, then the Philistines would be the slaves of the Israelites. And he was constantly, for 40 days and 40 nights, he was, he was shouting this challenge and mocking the God of Israel. Uh, and David hears these words. And all the men of Israel, when they saw this man, fled from him and were very much afraid. The men of Israel said, have you seen this guy who has just come up? I mean, surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches. Uh, he's talking about the, the reward. And will give him his daughter and his father's house will be free from taxes in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? That's his first question. The second question is, how come nobody's done this? <laughs> who is this guy? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man uh, who kills him. And going on to verse 28, his brother steps in, his oldest brother, Eliab, heard what David was saying to the men and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Can we just say that verse together? And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? Notice he doesn't say, why have you come here? He said, why have you come down? In other words, you were safe and protected up there with those sheep back in the hill. You've been, you've been hanging in the back. Uh, you've, been, you've been taking it easy. You've had a life of leisure. Us, some of us have been here for 40 days. You don't know what it's like to be under this kind of pressure. You don't know what it's like to be in front of this giant for 40 days. Why have you come down? Why have you stepped down? Aren't you too high and lofty? Aren't you too protected and innocent to be involved? It's, he's, he's saying, why have you come down? Why have you got this close to the battle line when you've been living in, in safety for so long? Why have you come down and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Now, this is an extraordinary statement. He says, I know your presumption. Uh, that's a word for pride. I think uh, King James Version says haughtiness. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart for you have come down to see the battle. In other words, you're not here to fight. You're just here to watch. David said, what have I done? Right? What have I done actually? What have I done now? Was it not but a word? In other words, I'm just saying. Um, today we're going to talk about the giant of anger because there is a good anger and I hope you're feeling that being kindled in your spirit. I hope you're busting up some stuff in your life that doesn't need to be there. I hope you're getting fed up uh, with some things that maybe you were complacent about. But for many of us, the giant of anger uh, is a negative giant. It's a, it's a type of anger that causes us to act more like Eliab uh, than David. It causes us to uh, respond and react to people in our lives um, like Eliab did. Because what's interesting is that Eliab, he's clearly uh, has some bitterness. He clearly has some jealousy of David. I mean, most commentators kind of point that out because David was chosen by God and Eliab was not. And so most people kind of bring it back to that and say, well, that's just kind of where things started to go downhill for Eliab. But, but I actually think it's, 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 it's bigger than that. And I think Eliab's anger gives us a view into what the giant of anger will do to us. You see, David was um, about to be 
Uh, he wasn't at this point, but he was about to be the greatest king in all of Israel's history. Not only the greatest king, but, but, but as the Bible calls him, the king, um, the primary king, the king that would end all other monarchies in Israel, whose, whose line, the Davidic line, whose monarchy would extend, God said, forever. God said to David, I will establish your throne forever. And when Jesus came, the angel told Mary that he would sit on the throne of his father, David. So the, the dynasty of David, I mean, it's, it's more than just the San Antonio Spurs, you know, it's, it's got, it's a little bit, it's a little bit richer than that. It's a little more than the Patriots. Uh, he's, he's building something something bigger. He's building something grander. Uh, God's about to do something amazing through this young man. He's about 17 years old at this point. And, and what God did is God selected David, but he didn't select him on an island. David was a part of a family. David was a part of a family. He had seven older brothers and a father and a, and a mother. He, he was a part of a family. And it's interesting to me, this is one of the dangers of anger, one of the destructive natures of anger, is that anger will cause you to fight against the very people that you're supposed to fight for. Like, like God selected Eliab to be the oldest brother of the greatest king in all of history. God selected Eliab to be the guy in David's life that would encourage him, that would speak um, courage into him, that would speak challenging words into him, that would build him up, that would, in, that, that would enlighten him, that would train him up, that would make him the king he was supposed to be. God selected, handpicked Eliab, true, not to be the king of Israel, but to be the oldest brother of the king of Israel. I mean, when David showed up at that fight, I mean, Eliab should have been excited for him because, man, this is, this is David's shot. This is his chance to finally take out Goliath and to get into uh, the royal palace, marry the king's daughter. This is a step for him to fulfill his destiny. But instead of being excited for his brother, what anger will do is it will cause you to fight against the very people that you're supposed to be fighting for, that God put you on that job to speak life into that coworker. But because of your anger, you end up speaking death to them. You end up cursing them. You end up belittling them. You end up telling them, I don't think you can do it. I don't think you, you're, you, can, you can cut it. I don't think you even should be here. Your anger will cause you to fight against the very people that God intended for you to fight for. And by the way, the very person that would and will fight for you. David's about to go take out Goliath for his brothers. And this is the example that Jesus left us, that even while he was being crucified, he was dying for the people that were killing him. But this is the problem with destructive anger, anger that rages within us, anger that, 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 that sits in our battlefield and taunts us every day. We end up, not even on purpose, we, we, but we end up fighting against the very people that God intended for us to fight with, and to fight for, to fight beside, to stand behind. is crazy. And this is how relationships are, are obliterated. This is how churches are split. This is how small groups, uh, you know, just turn against each other. This is, this, is how, this is how humanity gets ugly whenever the giant of anger comes into our valley and, and stays in our life. It's not, it's not just a momentary thing. This is not, this, 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 this anger that is in Eliab, it says it was kindled against him. Well, kindled, I mean, that's, 
that's, that's a picture of a fire, right? So you gotta have, you gotta have some wood, you gotta have some fuel, you gotta have some gasoline maybe, if you're a Texan, you gotta have some matches. I mean, you, like everything, you, you have to be assembling something for a while and just, I mean, just the, the, the match is not really the thing that, that did it all. It wasn't the conversation that David had that really set him off. It's the fact that he had all of the fuel he needed to burn with anger already in his heart. And that's what the giant of anger will do. He will, he will, he will stay in your life so much and, and weigh on you so much, you become so agitated, so irritable that the smallest thing just begins to set off the kindling that he's already been gathering in your life. The giant of anger is right there in Eliab's mind. And as soon as his brother just starts asking some questions, suddenly he lashes out at him and, and starts, starts fighting against him. Starts fighting against the guy that he should be fighting for and really the guy who would eventually fight for him. Anger is destructive, but it's also deceptive. Anger is deceptive. Anger will make you um, see reality in a different light. It will change reality for you. You will, you will be confident of things that you cannot be confident of. Notice what Eliab says. He says, I know the pride of your heart and the evil of your heart. I mean, anybody listening to that statement, anybody sitting in on that conversation would say, now, I mean, Eliab, come on. I mean, really, do you really know David's heart? I mean, like, you know, in First Samuel, just the chapter in front of this, God himself says, look, man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. Uh, what, what anger will do is it will make you think that you know stuff you couldn't possibly know. You, you know, you'll see someone's Facebook post or their, or their Instagram picture and you'll just know what they're thinking and you'll just know why they said that. <laughs> I know that was directed at me. I know he's talking about me. Well, not exactly. I mean, if they didn't tag you, your name's not in it, maybe it's not about, you know, but, you, but the anger will cause you to jump to these conclusions and you'll be certain, man, I know what's going on in your heart. How, how, Elia, stop, time out, but how are you so sure? Well, because I see it, I see it, it's right there. And it's true. Anger will make you think you're looking through a window when really you're looking at a mirror. Anger will make you think you're looking out a window, but really you're looking at a mirror. You do see it. <laughs> it's there. Problem is, it's not in David, Eliab. Uh, it's in you. This is what anger will do. Anger will hold up a mirror in front of other people and you'll see what you struggle with in them. That's all the kindling, see. Eliab was mad at himself before he was mad at David. Look at what he accuses of him. He says, he says, I know your presumption. That word presumption, it, it's a little bit deceptive. It, uh, it, it looks like pride, um, but constantly in the Old Testament, there are different words for pride. Um, when we think of pride, we think of looking down on people, right? Like, I think I'm better than you. Uh, that's what we think of when we think of prideful people. Well, they just think they're high and mighty. They think they're better. But this word for pride doesn't actually mean that, that David thought he was better than other people or that Eliab was accusing him of that. He wasn't accusing him of that at all. The word, this word for pride means to act pridefully towards somebody. Now, that's different. To act pridefully, actually the word means to boil over. It means like, a, like, like you have a pot on a stove and the water gets so hot it starts boiling over. 
um, it means to seethe or seething anger at somebody. In fact, when God, uh, earlier in the Bible, when God was outlawing murder, he said, whoever acts pridefully toward his neighbor and kills him, um, that person needs to be taken out of the camp and executed. Um, obviously, God's not talking about whoever acts like, like I'm better than you, but it's this, it's this anger, which is at the root of all murder, is anger. It's what Jesus said. Jesus said, you've heard it said by men of old, you shall not kill, but I tell you, whoever is angry at his brother without a cause is in danger of hellfire. So, so the word here for pride is not, is not what we think of as haughtiness. It's really a boiling over. It's a seething, which by the way is exactly exactly what is happening in Eliab's heart. The Bible tells us that his anger was kindled. It was burning. And then he looks at David and he says, your heart is burning. You are angry at us because we haven't done anything. You're accusing us for not having done. You're burning in anger. You're just here to, to tell us off. You're just here to, to, to complain against us. What is he doing? He's not looking at David's heart. He's looking at his own. He's looking at the anger inside of his own heart. The smoke that he sees coming out of David's ears is actually just smoke coming out of his ears, just kind of dwafting over in that general direction. And this is what happens with anger. We start to see, we start to project our issues on other people. And we see it. We see it on other people. Um, uh, Rose not here in this service, so I guess I can share. I didn't share the story in the first service, but um, uh, a while ago we had we had somebody um, uh, in the church. Uh, they were they they visited with us for a little while, and then they sent me really like multiple very long emails um, detailing why they were leaving our church and and how angry they were, and um, and and it, it had to do with like two things. But the main, the primary thing, which 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 encapsulated about two emails and about three text messages, um, was 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 how. Um, unfriendly and mean um, Roe is. That's what, yeah, yeah, that's what it was. And I kind of wanted to respond, no, that's my other wife. I leave her at home. She doesn't come to church. <laughs> Keep her locked up in the basement. No, I, I only have one. I only have one. Serious. Honest to God. But it's like, it's like, what are you talking about? Like, this is like, this is so weird. Like, it was, it was actually, it was Rowan and somebody else. That was just so weird. It's like, these people are like, so, if anything, Row is too friendly. I'm always like putting, pumping the brakes, you know, honey, like maybe they don't like hugs, you know, maybe, they, maybe, maybe we don't go over to their house. We don't know those people, you know, it's like, you know, but it's, but it's so funny how we are so quick to see stuff that we struggle with stuff that is in our heart and we just project that onto some of the strangest people. It's like, of all the things, you know, Rose's not perfect, but anger, yeah, mean cruelty, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff was just some of those words. I was like, wow, that doesn't even make sense. But this is what, this is what it'll cause us to do. And we'll fight against the very people that God's bringing to us because we hold up that mirror and we don't believe it's in us. We believe it's in them. God can never work on us when we're too angry at them. That's why the giant of anger is so successful because he just sits there and holds up a mirror and we get frustrated at stuff that we think is out there. But actually it's in here. He says, I know the, 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 the seething anger of your heart and the evil of your heart. Uh, the Hebrew for the evil just means badness. I know that your, your heart is bad. How in the world would he know that? Well, we do know that Eliab's heart 
was there was something off with his heart. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, um, God sends Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint the next king of Israel. Eliab's the first one to come in and Samuel says either out loud or to himself, he says, this is the guy, this is the Lord's anointed. And God rebukes him, rebukes Samuel and says, no, 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 no. A man looks on the outside, but I look on the heart and I have rejected him. In other words, there's something about Eliab's heart that God, 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 God thought about Eliab to be king, but he saw something in his heart that was off. And God said, no, this isn't the guy. And now Eliab is accusing David of having a heart that's off. It's bad. There's something, something wrong with the inside of David's heart. And he says, for you have come down to see the battle. You're not here to fight. You're just here to watch. Well, what had Eliab been doing for the last 40 days? <laughs> see, he's just, he's just mad at himself, really. See, anger is destructive. Anger is deceptive. But the worst kind of anger is the anger that we have toward ourselves. It's the... And I don't know if anybody else struggles with this, but it's the disappointment, not that we have in other people, the disappointment we have with ourselves. Eliab is dealing with the pressure of being the oldest um, in a family that was very well respected. And he was considered to be, you know, one of the best looking, strongest, uh, brightest soldiers out there on the field. And... So he was really, he was beating himself up. He was beating himself up that, that his little brother is coming talking about the very thing that he's been feeling in his own heart but doesn't have the courage to do. So I, I, don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just me, but sometimes the anger of what other people do or the disappointment is, is one thing, but the, the disappointment that I am to myself is the hardest thing to handle. And that's where the name Eliab means uh, God is my father. And I think that's partly where some of our issues arise out of. It's that when we're young, uh, we often see our father or, and or our mother and God almost in the same category. We start to perceive who God is based on uh, the parents that we have. And I'm not here to bash parents because I... I, I is one. Um, <laughs> but the truth is, uh, none of us, the best father in this room is going to fall short of accurately representing who God is. Uh, it's the best, the best dad. So that's the best. So you got, if you're the best, if you're the, if you got one of those mugs, um, congratulations. Um, you still fall short. Like you're still not going to cut it. Uh, the best mom in this place is still not going to cut it. You're still going to say something to your kids that's going to stick with them. And they're going to be going into counseling to their pastor because one time my dad said this and he thought, and my dad wasn't, didn't, didn't come to that game or wasn't there for me then. He was working here. He was too busy for that. He was, I mean, you know, it, it's, it, it's easy when you're 20 and you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to do that. But then when you actually have kids, you start to realize it isn't so easy. And then and, and when, when, you, when you have little kids, it's a little bit easier, but then they get old enough to start telling you all the stuff you did wrong. And that's when it's really difficult, you know, because I scarred them for life. And to some extent, I think God engineered this. Like God intended for, for babies to be born in imperfect environments. 
with imperfect parents, with, with, with people who are still in process, so that, just like I have had to learn, and you have had, and all of us have had to come to the conclusion that I cannot trust in humans, I can only trust in God. Uh, maybe, maybe a better uh, goal than being the perfect parent is to be the kind of parent that can teach your kid how to rely on God. And that's something I learned. That's something I grew up with. My parents got saved six months before I was born. They were not Jesus when I was born. They didn't hardly even know Jesus. They, they didn't have a clue. They, they were coming from their own families, which their own families were pretty far from God until right around the same time, like all of mom's brothers and sisters got saved all around the same time. And so the whole family was just trying to figure out what this Jesus thing was. And so they were not uh, pastors or preachers or teachers. Um, they weren't asked to pray at church meetings or like lead anything or do anything. Like they, we, we were just like, we were the janitors. Mom and dad were the janitors for the church. So we were scrubbing toilets, you know. I mean, we didn't, and, and we, we were learning. And I, and, I, and I think that's so important that God puts kids in imperfect environments so that uh, you can see uh, people who are in process as you grow up and you can say, okay, this is how this process thing works. I don't get it right all the time, but God is merciful and God is gracious and God is loving and God is patient and God is kind. And, and yeah, God is angry at sin and God will come in and help me break up stuff in my life and he'll lead me forward and teach me and my kids will be in a better place than I was when I was a kid. And, uh, and then their kids will be in a better place than, than they were. And God will just from glory to glory, God will continue this, this process, but we'll never, we'll never have the perfect parent. We'll always have a dad who, who said something too much or, or was too angry or drank too much or, or cheated on us or cheated on the family or walked away from the family or was there but absent, was, was working all the time or, 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 or maybe he was negative. Maybe, he, maybe, maybe we couldn't live up to mom's expectations. And I mean, you know, I mean, that, that, that kind of stuff sticks with you. God is my father. This is Eliab. This is what his name means. And he's the oldest of the son of Jesse. And Jesse is the oldest grandson of a guy named Boaz and a lady named Ruth. The whole book of the Bible is written about them. You talk about some pressure on his shoulders that he was living with. And it is this pressure, by the way, that helps create the kindling for anger. Because we, you, you, cause, cause, cause you mess up. And then you become angry at yourself. You, you slip and you, you become, become angry at yourself. You, you, you're angry at yourself. And the self-anger starts to seep out. And it's just the smallest things then that set you off to express anger to other people. But I feel like Eli, Eliab needed to have a shift in his life. And I feel like I need to have a shift in my life. Uh, just, just recently, a couple weeks ago, I was praying and um, it was before I was going to bed at night and um, I just laid down on the bed and um, I was still quarantined because I was sick and so I had to sleep by myself in Micah's room and um, I just kind of had this great, <laughs> that's, that's how it goes in my family. Um, if you're sick, you're quarantined and you're responsible for your own germs and all that kind of stuff. So um, for those of you that still come to church when you're sick, um, shame on you. I'm judging you. I am judging you. And cursing you when I when I catch what you have, um, but uh, anyway, but Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, uh, and 
Anyway, you know, it's, it's just, it's just this, this, is what, this is what anger will do. And, and I, I was just feeling, I don't know, I was praying and I was just having this great talk with God and um, I was going to sleep and I laid down. I always go to sleep real quick. Like I just fall asleep, bam. Um, just, I always have, I always will. I could go to sleep right now. Five, give me five minutes, I'll be asleep on that chair. Um, like I, I can just do it. And uh, so I lay down and go to sleep and I, I don't fall asleep. So I'm kind of tossing and turning and God was just like, the Holy Spirit was just like, what? Which by the way, you need to have conversations with the Holy Spirit. You need to talk with the Holy Spirit. He's a, he's a person, right? He, he wants to know your thoughts. He wants to know your desires. He wants to know your struggles. Uh, you don't have to like always just confess everything. At least he's, he, he's not a priest. He's a person. And uh, he knows what you've done because he was there in the room with you. So, you know, like you're not surprising him, shocking him. It's, he's a person and he still loves you and he wants to talk with you. And so this is what I was doing. I was just talking with the Holy Spirit. He's asking me all kinds of things. And, and um, uh, anyway, I, I, I'm not, not going to sleep. And he's like, what? What? what, 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 what what's going on? And, and, and I said, I don't really know what. I do feel like a heaviness in my chest. I feel something like it's like something on the tip of my tongue but I can't put words to it I don't know if you ever felt that way before it's like something's just kind of on me kind of heavy I just but I, it's not necessarily bad it's not really that great I don't know it's just kind of there and I can't conjure up the words to wrap my head around it to express to you Lord what it is but you know this is just me I don't know what I'm dealing with here and so and so I did something I I, I just said Lord you know I, I don't know, like my brain, I'm just not smart enough. So maybe you could like circumvent my, con circumvent my conscience and give me a spiritual dream tonight um, to kind of speak to my subconscious. Um, for those of you that don't believe in that, that's fine. I believe that God can speak to us through dreams. Uh, he's been speaking to me since I was young through dreams. Now, and, and, and I, I qualify that statement with every dream about your grandmother is not God, right? So just FYI, that could be the pizza. Um, those lottery numbers, that might not be God. I'm just saying. It's like you got to sort of weigh it and just pray about it. And so anyway, I, I go to sleep and it doesn't always work that way. You can't be like, God, I got to have a spiritual dream tonight. And, and it just doesn't always work that way. But it did that night. I had this weird dream. And the next day I was talking to Roe about it. And I was just like, I'm trying to figure what this is. And um, that night I finally figured out, I finally realized that what God was sharing with me was that um, the things that were on my chest that I didn't feel like I could share, I just couldn't get words for, were things, the reason I couldn't get words for them is because they weren't real. They were two things. One, my disappointments, and two, my dreams. Neither one of those are actual real things. I mean, they do exist, but just like between your ears. <laughs> your dreams and your disappointments. And this is, I think, two of the major sources of anger in our lives. They, they are the two sticks, wooden kindling of anger for us. Unrealized dreams and unexpected disappointments. Unrealized dreams and unexpected disappointments. We walk around with these things and we don't even get words to them all the time, but they are, they're just always on our chest. They're always on our shoulder. They're always... It's what's driving us to work way more hours than we should. It's what's driving us uh, uh, to, 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 to spend way more time comparing ourselves with other people than we should. It's what, it's, what, it's what is so often, it's the unspoken drive inside of us that leaves us on edge. It, it is what is turning up the temperature in our souls. The boiling in our souls is happening because of the weight of our unrealized dreams and our unexpected disappointments. And, and I, I have those. Look, I, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor, but I'm also just a person. I'm just regular. Like if you had the microphone, you would talk about you. I'm talking about me. Um, I'm just a regular person. 
And, and, and by the way, if you want like to an acceleration in disappointment, like just become a pastor, like just do that. Um, like seriously, <laughs> like 30 minutes and you'll, you'll have a whole new level of disappointment. Uh, you know, and, and like we've even, and we did, I, like sometimes like I'm just kind of used to being a pastor. I've been doing it for a while. And uh, uh, we, last semester, we had to kind of like sit with our small group leaders because I forgot how much disappointment you go through when you are like, like loving on people, right? And so even with our small group leaders, like we got them in a, in a room, we were like, hey, okay, what do you, what do you struggle with? It's like, well, like all these people tell us they're coming to my group and then they don't come. And then they, and then they, then, then they are there and then they're not really getting it. And it's, and it's basically like disappointment. And so we've had to like sit with our small group leaders and like, you know, like be like, hey, that, that's okay. Like that's, that's, that's how it is. Like when you're loving on people, you know, they'll, 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 they'll call you on the day and be like, I was coming, but I, <laughs> but I have a cough. And, <laughs> and then like that night they'll be watching Black Panther and it's the best movie ever. And wow, it's amazing. Well, got over that cough real quick. I mean, nobody in this room, nobody here, just don't worry. This doesn't apply to you. Uh, this is a totally hypothetical situation, but you know, it's like, it's like, this is part of like dealing, loving people, helping people is you're going to have like some disappointment and people lie like straight to your face, you know, it's and that's just a part of it, but, and that, that's in my world, but in your world, like you have disappointments as well. You have things that you thought were going to work out and, and they haven't worked out. A, a, a good friend of mine who was a good friend during college days, uh, I saw her post just uh, yesterday on Facebook. She said, she said, it's so frustrating when, not, when, when you feel like you work so hard, but you're still so far behind in life. She said, I just feel defeated. And I feel like so many people resonate with that because there's this, there's this push of unrealized dreams and unexpected disappointments just at our back, right? And it's like, it's like we, don't even, we don't even necessarily wanna grow up as fast as we're growing up. We don't even necessarily wanna work as crazy as we're working. And I mean, you know, it's like it's, she, she feels so far behind. And my question is behind what? Behind her dreams behind the way she thought it would be, behind the age she thought she'd be married, behind the way she thought life would work, behind the, the number that she thought she'd have in the bank account, behind the, 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 what she would do with her degree, right? I mean, you know, so many, so many things just, they, they, the, the disappointments of life stack up and we walk around with these, no wonder we're so like on edge. No wonder we're so defensive when someone suggests that, hey, maybe we should take out that giant. Whoa, what are you talking about? Yeah, what you talking about was, what you talking about was, you know, it's like we get, we get so defensive because it's not because other people are aggressive toward us. It's because we are aggressive toward ourselves because we're beating ourselves up day after day. We're, we're taking it to us and we don't even have words around it. Sometimes it's just this, ah, this feeling. And so I woke up a few days later because I was praying. I was like, Lord, how do I get rid of these unrealized dreams. I mean, you know, I mean, I have dreams in my heart. I have dreams for my marriage, like the kind of marriage that I want to have, the kind of kids I want to have, the kind of church that I want to have, the kind of ministry that I want. Like I have these dreams. I don't think dreams are bad. I don't think we should just like give up on all of our dreams and just, oh, whatever. Like I'm not really about that. Like I have vision, I have goals, but how do I hold on to that? And then also with all this disappointment with all the stuff that didn't work the way I thought it would and, and all and all the, all the things that just fell through and the reality sometimes of my life, the reality of my kids and my marriage and, 
and which is which is wonderful but not always what I want it to be reality of me which is good but not always what I want it, me to be how do I live with this how do I how, how do I not carry this and uh, God wasn't really speaking to me about that and so oh, the only thing he was speaking to me about was the fact that those two things are not real and the problem with holding those things so closely is that we don't actually deal with real we don't make real changes we don't do real we just do dreams and disappointments we live in those those circles and then real is right now and we're missing real we're missing right now we're just, just life is just spinning by us and a giant of anger is just sitting there on our shoulder and we're not get, getting any better and we're not making any contributions we're not doing real. We're just doing dreams and disappointments. And so that's one thing God said. I want, you to, I want you to look at real. I want you to work on real. Because, because your, your, your dreams, your disappointments are fine, but, but what are you, what, what, what's real in your life right now? And, and then a few days later, God woke me up um, with this statement. And he never speaks to me in the morning. I don't know why. Everybody says, you got to pray in the morning. I'm like, no. Jesus doesn't wake up till about 10 a.m. I don't think, uh, you know. Which is why you come to the 1115, because he's not even here at 930. Um, so you all show up about the same time Jesus does. Uh, you know, because I, I haven't had coffee yet, and I don't hear very well from God without coffee. I just don't. I need the anointing. And, uh, uh, but it was, it was clear as day. Like, seriously, as soon as I opened my eyes, like barely opened my eyes, God spoke to me and said, she was never disappointed. And I was like, What? <laughs> she was never disappointed and and I got thinking of who and and God reminded me of this story this girl that we counseled back in promised land there's this lady who came to my, my wife and I for counseling um she had uh uh, she'd been through a lot um, and um, her and her husband set out to plant a church and it crashed and burned um, her husband cheated on her and then divorced her um, she was it was just it was just ugly situation and um, and she was talking to us she's working through her grief right and she said she she quoted scripture Isaiah 49 verse 23 that says those who trust or those who hope in the Lord will never be disappointed um, uh, technically he's it's God talking he says those who hope in me will never be disappointed and she quoted that and she said, how is that true? Those who hope in God will never be disappointed. And here I am with a, with a handful, pileful truckload of disappointment. Disappointed in my husband, disappointed in our ministry, disappointed in the church, disappointed in them. It's all just disappointment everywhere. How can it be true that, that, that doesn't make sense? And God's not holding up his end of the bargain. God's word isn't true. And, and God spoke to me just the other day, last week, and said she was never disappointed. I said, well, what are you talking about? So, so I went and looked up the verse. Um, if, we, if we could pull that up. I, I gave a few verses beforehand, but if we could just go to that last verse, verse 23, um, just, just so you can see what I'm talking about. Right there at the end, then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Uh, there is a pre-qualifier to this statement, this lack of disappointment. There is uh, the key to living in such a way that you are never disappointed. This is it right here. Those who hope in me. And, 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 I, th and I think as, as, as we talked to this lady, she felt like she was hoping in God. And this is what we do. We hope that God will get us what we need. 
Like, right, so, so God, I'm, I'm trusting you that you're gonna make sure that, 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 that my marriage stays together, right? And if it's, because like, if my marriage falls apart, I don't know what I'm gonna do. And so, God, you're gonna keep my marriage together. <laughs> but if, 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 if what you're hoping for is different than what you're working on, you, you are not living in reality. You're, 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 you're tricking yourself. So often this is what we do. We hope that God will fix, like for instance, the marriage. God will fix the marriage. And then we go about all day long trying to fix the marriage. We try to do everything that we can. Try to make sure we give all the positive words, encouragement, do it. And, and then we, 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 we do everything that we can. Because God, if God doesn't fix the marriage and the marriage falls apart, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so technically our hope is not really in God. It's in our marriage. Our hope is that God will fix the thing that we really need so that we'll be happy, so that we'll never be disappointed. But really that means our hope is in our marriage. And this is true of good things like marriage. It's also true of, you know, not so great things. But, but it's true throughout our lives. We can hope in, 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 in people being there for us. We can hope in, in processes. We can hope in finances. We can hope in all of these things and then bring God along for the ride. And then we're disappointed still. That's where the Lord said, she was never disappointed when she hoped in me. What he's saying is, those who want God, get them. <laughs> Period. And I know like these prosperity folks will be like, eh, you never, like God will give you everything that you want. Um, no, that's if you vote for Pedro. That's how that works. <laughs> All your wildest dreams come true. Vote for Pedro. But, 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 but in God's kingdom, those who hope in him will never be disappointed. And so the great, I think the great shift that has to happen in our hearts is what we hope in. Really, all disappointment is misplaced hope. It's where you take hope and you put it on something or someone that really shouldn't be there. And it's not to say that things will always work out the way that you think they should, because they don't. But, but those who hope in me will never be disappointed. Those who prioritize me, those who say, I need God above and beyond. Even, my, even if my marriage falls apart and I'm divorced at 30, I need God. Even if my kids, you know, run away and do all kinds of crazy stuff, I need God. Even if my church abandons me, even if people forsake me. I need, even if I lose my job, if I lose all my money, I lose my house. I need God. Those who hope in the Lord, those who hope in him will never be disappointed. And then if we rewind back to the previous verses, you see kind of how God does this in verse 20. He starts telling them how this is going to happen. He tells them the children that were born during your bereavement will say in your hearing, this place is too small for us. Give us more space to live in. In other words, like, Sometimes I think in the middle of our bereavement, we, we don't believe that we are bearing anything. But the, the amount of kids, God says, the amount of kids you have during your bereavement, there'll be so many, they're going to come to you and say, man, this house is too small. We need a bigger house. We need a bigger space to live in. Then you will say in your heart, who bore me these? <laughs> I was bereaved and barren. I was... I was sorrowful and lost. I was bereaved and barren. You can believe yourself to be barren because of all of the disappointments, all the stuff that didn't work out the way that you thought. But what God does is God takes the 
times, the seasons of bereavement, the seasons of disappointment, when you hope in God, God takes those times and he turns them around to where he's doing things that you don't even know that he's doing. So that some of the hardest times in your life are also end up being some of the most fruitful times in your life. And you look around, you say, where did this fruit come from? Where did this joy come from? Where did this peace come from? Where did these results come from, right? Like, where did these people, literal, actual souls, where did the soul, I had no idea that they were watching me walk through this. I had no idea that God was speaking to them just through me, just living my life in my bereavement. But in my bereavement and in my barrenness, I was exiled and rejected. Who brought these things up? I was left all alone, but these, where have they come from? <laughs> where have they come from? Who, where, this, is, this is like, I mean, right after we started the church, like six months in, our house flooded, two and a half feet of water in our living room and uh, our kids' rooms, and I'm grabbing the kids and the dog and my laptop and carrying them out of the house and putting them in the car and trying to escape. There's a tornado coming. I mean, it was crazy, and some of you were actually there with us. You took time off of work to come help us afterward and rip out sheetrock and all kinds of junk, and, and, and you know, and, and it was the, one of the hardest times in our lives. Because as a dad, I'm supposed to be having a decent place for my kids to live. But after that, we had to live like in the top boarded up part of the house for a year. And I killed like three rats with, 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 uh, uh, what's that, that spray that, that shoots 20 feet. It's the, it's the wasp spray. I found out why I, I didn't have anything else. And so apparently if you hit them right in the face, you get, uh, uh, all the all the all the all the creature lovers. I'm sorry, but some things just have to die. There are some things that just like anger just has to take it out. It just has like it's either my family or the rat. The rat's going down, you know. And, and you know, I mean, like we had two water moccasins right down on the lower level that were curled up under some insulation. I mean, it was crazy that we had bees living in our in our wall. There was this huge honey hive. We had to have them exported so we didn't kill them, and they kept coming back. You know, I mean, it was in the mag gets falling out of the ceiling in the bathroom. I could get more intense if you want, but it was rough. You know what I'm saying? It was a difficult time, but, but what's crazy is God asked ask us to walk through that, and like while we're walking through it, we're like, where did this peace come from? Where did this assurance come from? Where did this joy come from? Where did this hope come from? Where did these finances come from? FEMA came through and gave us a loan, like 1% interest. We bought a brand new house, and so many people in the church who had this mixed up theology about, well, if you're good, then God will never let anything bad happen to you, they suddenly were confronted with a living lesson of, uh-oh, sometimes bad stuff does happen to you, and God gives you the grace to walk through it. And we turn around and go, where are these kids, where are these spiritual kids come from? Like, we were just walking through difficulty. We were just living through bereavement. We thought we were barren. Where did they come from? Go on to the next verse and you see God also says that, 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 that this is what the sovereign Lord says. He says, see I will beckon the nations and I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their hips. Kings will be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. In other words, somebody else has been babysitting your blessing. Somebody else has been, has been nursing your blessing. Somebody else has been feeding your blessing and growing it to the place that, until you're actually ready to receive it. But just because you feel barren doesn't mean that God hasn't been busy. And this is what's so interesting about Eliab's life. Eliab started off, his name means 
God is my father. And, and after this little confrontation, he has no, uh, he's never mentioned again. He's just kind of like he disappears from David's life. David goes on, defeats the giant. He becomes, uh, he, he's, he's, he's exiled for like, you know, it's like 17 years before David finally ascends the throne. And we still don't hear about his older brother Eliab. And we hear about a lot of the conquest and the fighting and the kingdom he establishes and yada, yada, yada. Until we get to the end of David's life in, in, in First Chronicles um, chapter 27. There's only 28 chapters in Chronicles. And it's the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. And it's the last moments of David's life. And David is appointing leaders over the different tribes. And there's this little passage in chapter 18 that says that David, um, when it came to Judah, which is where David and his family were from, they're from the tribe of Judah, David appointed Elihu to be the leader of the tribe of Judah, uh, comma, a brother of David. And all scholars agree that there was no Elihu listed as one of David's brothers, that instead that must be um, Eliab. It's a, it's a slightly different name. The first three letters are the same. The last couple are different. Uh, the first three uh, means God, right? And so um, when you have Eliab, God and Father, God is my Father, is the meaning of his name. But at the end of his life, when he was put in charge, David put this guy in charge of all of Judah, and he called him Elihu, which means God is my God. So there has to be a transition, a shift in our mind that says, yeah, okay, I've learned some stuff from my earthly father and I've taken some good, but there's also been some bad, some expectations and some weight that's been on me that I thought I was responsible for producing my own children, right? According to Isaiah 49. But God says, Those, thus says the sovereign Lord, the God, I am not your parent, I am not your mom, I am not your father. I am your God and I am sovereign and I do things even when you can't see what I'm doing. And Eliab had a shift. He had a name change. His name went from Eliab, God is my father, to God is my God. He is the one who is my defender. He is the one who is my fighter. He answers all of my critics, even my biggest critic, myself. He speaks to my feelings of inferiority. He speaks to my regret. He speaks to my disappointment in myself. That when I look at who I am and I say I'm not who I could be, I'm not who I should be, he speaks to me. God is not an earthly father. He's not an earthly mother. As good as they try, as those people try to be, they can never live up. God is God. He is sovereign. And so would you bow your heads with me? Let's